One of the things that I also tell people is in this conversation, like all conversations, punch up. Like, it is not your job to tell someone with less economic disposable income than you Mm. that they should be buying from all these ethical brands. Like, that's very unfair. However, you know, especially if you're a Londoner, most of your friends are probably from the same socioeconomic background as you are, Mm. you know? So, like, it's one of those things where I'm never, ever going to look at the single mother of two and ask her why she's buying her kid's shoes from Primark. You right. know, like that to me being a crappy person. But in actuality, most of my friends are at the same place income-wise as I am. So I can talk to them about buying better. Mm-hmm. And the goal overall for me is to basically regulate the fashion industry so that everyone is operating from the same place. And when you get to that point, there'll be something for people at every income level. You know Mm. what I mean? Mm. But overall, we have to overhaul what we currently have because right now it's like the wild, wild west out there. I'm Leila Saad and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad, and today I'm here with Aja Barra. Aja is a writer, stylist, consultant, and speaker whose work focuses on the intersections of feminism, colonialism, and race in regards to our clothing and how we choose to consume. I met Aja through Instagram, of course, my favorite virtual place to hang out. And I remember the way in which we met was through an article that she had written at a time which I just was like, I need to share this because it was calling to attention something that was happening online regarding you know, race and feminism and particularly white feminism. And I really respected Aja's way of expressing herself and bringing to light the things that we needed to understand in a way that was very clear and concise. And so it's been an incredible pleasure to see and witness Aja as she's cultivated this incredible conversation online and community around these, the conversation of sustainable fashion. And so I'm really, really happy to have you here today, Aja. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's really nice to virtually meet. Um, I have a lot of respect for what you do and, and just who you are and your way of being. I tend to adopt things with you. Like you've messaged me before about things and asked like, do you have the bandwidth for this right now? And I've adopted that because it's such a kind and considerate way to enter someone's space. So I just much respect to you, Leila. Oh, thank you. The respect is absolutely mutual. I'm really excited to have you here and to have 
people listen to your brilliance. So let's dive into our conversation. Aja, our very first question that we ask every guest, who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned, familial or societal, who have influenced you on your journey? Well, my grandmother is with me at all times. Mm -hmm. Uh, She passed in 2013, and that was really much harder than I ever expected it to be. And lately, with all of the success that I have, I know that she would just be so tickled pink by it, and that somewhere in the universe, she's just watching and so delighted with Glee. And her husband, who I never met, my grandfather, he was just a really interesting person who really found a path for himself and his family in so many different ways. They were definitely blockbusters when they moved into certain neighborhoods. They were the first Black family and often unwanted. He worked with civil rights. He Mm. brought buses of people from York, Pennsylvania down to Washington for the March on Washington. He was just an an all-around like interesting progressive dude. He used to work for the Environmental Protection Agency And one of his friends owned a strip club and he used to get some of the women who were dancers jobs as secretaries during the day. And so he was just a really progressive person and people would be like, oh yeah, those very good secretaries in that (laughs) office, you know, but like, yeah. And so I've always looked at the way my grandfather did things. He was a scrappy hustler and I've always just thought like, this is in my roots, the the hustle and, and the activism. You know, people say, how does this start? How do you start to get into this stuff? And I don't think it's a start. I think it's one of those things sometimes where it's in you. It's so interesting listening to you speak about your ancestors and particularly how your grandfather is not someone that you've ever met. And yet so much of what you're describing of what his life was, I'm like, oh, that's you. That's (laughs) how you show up in the world. He had progressive values, which were really like not, you know, definitely did things in his own way, which wasn't always like the most popular way, but he was just a really interesting person. So I've always just thought like one day we are going to meet. Mm. It's amazing to hear, and as I witness you, kind of his spirit alive in you already. That's really beautiful. You know, I, in my family, am kind of odd, and you probably know what I'm talking about. Sort of, you're you're the only one in your family who shows up in the way that you do, that you know of, Absolutely. right? <laughs> and honestly, like, I can't explain to my other grandmother what I do for a living. She would just be like, I don't, she doesn't have a computer, you know? She has no context to understand. No no context whatsoever. I mean, one time I was on Good Morning America's website and like, she got that kind of, you know? But like, and I think that's the same for a lot of people that operate in internet spaces that our parents basically have no idea really. And then one day we're published in an article. Oh yeah. We've written the book and then everybody's just like, oh, yeah. but like when you're on the, when you're on the come up, everyone's like, that's nice, dear. Yeah. You know, <laughs> my mother asked me, <laughs> Patreon was legal. She was like, so, so this whole thing, this platform, it, it's, it's good, right? It's legal, right? I was like, yes, it's legal, mom. I'm not running an illegal content making <laughs> side game. <right? laughs> <laughs> she was like, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it all. 
It's so funny that you say that. I mean, this year is the year that my family finally, I finally explained to them exactly what I did. And they were like, what do you mean you're writing a book? What do you mean it's being published? What do you mean it's been read by almost a hundred thousand people? I'm like, well, there's this thing called Instagram. (laughs) There's this this whole other way of being in the world now. And so something that I want to talk about is social media platforms are this like double-edged sword, right? Where it can yes. be this amazing place for learning, making new connections. You and I wouldn't be having this conversation if not no, for not at all. Um, these platforms. But people sure do show up to be the worst sometimes. Right, too. right. It's this <laughs> other side of it where it's like, you and I have both experienced, and you're recently today coming out of a social media break, which you decided yeah. to give to yourself because Absolutely. of having to deal with a lot of what I write about in me and white supremacy, right? So the white yeah. fragility, the tone policing, the white feminism, Trolling, the yeah, tro- white right. feminism, and I've silencing the silencing, right? And I've certainly had my experiences of those, and I know it really leaves you feeling heartbroken and drained, right? Emotionally drained, right? Like that's the thing. And and my partner, he has a day job, and he comes home, and he just he just doesn't understand like why I feel so completely drained, you know, but it can be extremely draining. I explain it to people like this. I work from home and during the winter time, especially in the UK, sometimes I don't leave the house much because it starts to get dark right around three. Right. So, yeah. And this so is why I don't live there anymore. <laughs> I know, right? It's great in the summer though. <laughs> but you have this space where people, 75% of people think that you're amazing. It gives you a very skewed perception of self. That's what right. I've been saying a lot lately because 75% of people think that you were so amazing. They tell you that and that's very nice. It could be a bit much sometimes. And then there's a 25% that doesn't like you you know, or even a 20% that doesn't like you and a 5% that hates you. Right. And it's the 5% that can drag you down the farthest. And the 20% can be exhausting because I always say this, I exist on the internet and there are so many people that I don't like, but like, I don't find the time to tell them because I'm too busy living my life. Right. You know, and I find that people really will make the time to, to sort of kick dirt in your face, even if they don't have to, right. because they're threatened by you, because they're uncomfortable with your message, because they're fragile. You know, there's right. a list of reasons that people come out of the woodwork swinging and it's just so bizarre. But like when you get too much of that, it can be just so emotionally draining. I had somebody who sent me all sorts of, they read a post of mine. It was just about like fashion and she wrote, well, F you, you know, I'm doing the best that I can, blah, 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 blah. And I came at it from a very calm approach and was just like, hey, we should discuss why you're feeling so upset about this thing I wrote. And so I went through it with them and I was like, you know, my work talks about privilege. So like, I'm not speaking to the person that cannot afford certain things. I'm speaking to the person like me in my twenties who had disposable income and would spend it on clothing from unethical companies. That's who right. I'm speaking to. You know, we're right. all doing our best. We're all at different levels. I talked this person down from like basically cussing me out. And then when I was done, I was just like, so why did you come into my inbox yelling at me like that? And then they blocked me. And I was like, cool. <laughs> so it's, it's a lot of that. Right. I have certainly for myself to 
created certain boundaries for myself where I won't do things like that. And I know that you have your boundaries around when and how you will engage. But what I know about just the scenario you've just described is that at the end of it, you have poured so much of yourself out and then you are completely empty. And sometimes I have people in my space who have sort of come about being a bit trolly and then they actually end up turning it around, contributing in a way that's really, and that's very rewarding, but that is still exhausting. You know what I mean? Like to get to a point where someone's always sort of making comments that aren't really helping the conversation, but then one day they get it right, and the shoe drops. Then they suddenly become your biggest advocate. Yes. Right. But it's still the time period where you're really trying with someone that nobody understands can be so exhausting. Right. Right. And so we're talking about the the side of social media that is absolutely just draining, exhausting, and not just yeah. social media, but actually what it means to be a Black woman who is talking about the kind of topics that you're talking about specifically. So race, colonialism, mm-hmm. and fashion, that mm-hmm. sort of trifecta is the hotbed of white feminism. And so- you get a very vicious side of when it is that 25% or yeah. whatever that percentage yes. is. It's a very vicious percent because you're threatening you, the you institution in of white life. womanhood. Yeah. And you do get it in real life too. I mean, a friend of mine who I really actually very much like, friend of my partner's was sort of like, you know, she's never talked about these topics at all. She's a white person. And she came to me one night when we were out having some Friday night drinks and she was like, don't you think sometimes you're a little bit harsh on people when you say like, I'm not going to explain that to you or this and that, like, aren't they just here to learn? And so we had a really long conversation. This is a friend. So obviously I have the energy to take that with someone I care about. It's like a tennis match, not quite Serena style, but (laughs) still quite lively of batting the ball back and forth. And, you know, there was a couple of times where it was like, I got you. And they, they understood. And it was like, oh yeah, I guess I get that. You know, I was explaining all sorts of things about privilege and Mm -hmm. white privilege and what it means. And Mm -hmm. and by the end of the conversation, I think that they were very tired from the conversation, as was I. Right. And I looked at them and said, now imagine that I had the conversation I just had with you with 30,000 people. Right. And all of a sudden the shoe dropped and they were like, okay, I get why you're like, yes, you know? Right, but they right. had to sort of be taken through the loop of all of this to, right. to sort of begin to grasp it and to begin to understand why it's exhausting for, for people, yeah. why it's exhausting for people like me. Right. And still though, Aja, what I love though, is that you are cultivating this community and body of work, both on Instagram and Patreon, which are the two platforms that you primarily share the sort of long yeah. form parts mm-hmm. of your work. I know that I'm guaranteed to come onto either one of those platforms anytime and find something where you've really thought about what you wanted to say. You're really laying out an argument, enlightening mm-hmm. us to a new thing that we may not be aware of. And particularly mm-hmm. in the area of work that you do where, I don't know if it's new, but it's new to many of us. And it's certainly with what we're seeing right now in the world in terms of the movements on climate change and sustainability, these kind of conversations are really coming to the surface in a new way with also the use of the technology of social media. And so 
I just really respect the body of work that you are cultivating and the way that you're able to hold conversations. When it comes to specifically that sort of trifecta that we talked about, race, colonialism, and fashion, can you help us make the links between the three of those? Basically, and Celine um, cements the Slow Factory. Who's who's been on this podcast and we had a conversation about you. Yeah. (laughs) He made this amazing map that basically maps the trade of fashion today. And there's very similar colonialist lines to when England, the country I live in, was going all sorts of places and raiding countries for spices and all sorts of other things. It's the same colonialist paths today that's being taken in order to create our fashion. And so basically how colonialism and fashion works is your fast fashion makers, your big brands, your big chains, nothing is made in countries like America or countries in Europe by these countries. It's all made overseas in countries where people of color live. So these companies are going into countries robbing them of their resources, their labor forces, and making very, very cheap garments, which we in the West are consuming rapidly. So you go and you buy a shirt for $20 and you like it, but it's not made very well because it's made so quickly. And after a year, it doesn't look the same. You don't want it anymore, but then you think, okay, well, I'm going to donate it to a charity. And most charities, Oxfam's doing better but a lot of charities are only selling 10% of the donations that they're receiving in regards to fashion because we are consuming five times the amount of clothing that we consumed 20 years ago. Mm. And so charities cannot get rid of it. A lot of it ends up becoming landfill waste or we put it into another bag and we ship it to a country in Africa, Rwanda, Kenya, And then once it gets there, it becomes their problem. It becomes either trash or it does get sold. And when it gets sold, it ruins the local economy in those countries. So people that are makers and artisans can't sell their clothing for a fair price and get a fair wage because there's tons of carts of clothing, crates every day coming in from the U.S. basically Mm. of our fast fashion cast-offs. And Countries like Rwanda try to actually block donations of clothing from America because the issue has become so big. And that wonderful Jim who sits at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue basically threatened to pull other support that we were giving these countries if they blocked our donations of clothing. So basically it's like, you will take our crap and you'll like it. And it's so unfair. It's such an unfair system. But in reality, we are taking from one group of people of color, consuming, mm. and then basically disposing on another group of people of color. And that is a colonialist line. Thank you for, for laying that out. Because, you know, obviously, people who are new to sort of, let's say, anti-racism work, really have an understanding that colonialism was something in the past. It's not something that happens now, Um, but there are different ways in which it shows up that are just as damaging. And and it ties into all sorts of other things in America. You know, of course the conservatives want to deregulate everything. What does regulation look like? 
Regulation looks like factories that have to have safety codes in place so that workers aren't killed. Mm-hmm. So when you're in the eighth grade, which is like 14, you learn in civics or history about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in New York. Today, that building is, I think, a part of the New York uh, NYU campus. Anyways, it was this factory at the turn of the century that made shirts, and the factory was mostly employing immigrant women. And the factory caught on fire and hundreds of people died because they couldn't Mm -hmm. get out of the building. The building had bad safety code. It was in violation of so much. And it was essentially a sweatshop. It was a terrible job. So when that happened, it basically got the wheels in place for regulation in America today because Mm. it's like this can't happen again. So we learned about that as Americans. And your teacher's like, thank God we have regulation. It'll never happen again. Actually, we have just outsourced the problem because right. as we know, in India, there was a fire in Dhaka, which Her- horrific. Was factory. horrific, yeah. people died. And then there was a factory that collapsed. The Rana Plaza collapsed once again. I think it was something like 1,300 people couldn't get out of the building. Building collapsed on top of them. The building was in poor shape. And all of these major brands that we all know have been involved in both of these incidences. Few of them got away without even paying the victims' families. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a fund, which a couple of brands did donate to, but several brands did not, which these are billion-dollar companies. Right. This shouldn't have happened, but um, the very least, you could pay the victims' families, and they're, they're getting away with literal murder. Right. As you're speaking, I'm really thinking about how white supremacy really permeates. Not just permeates, but how black and brown people are just seen as disposable people. That if 1,300 people die who are brown or black, like, oh, it's sad it happened, but right. Yeah. It's really disturbing. And You know, a lot of the brands are still allowed to get away with stuff. They might sign like a petition or a pact or something, but a lot of those things that they boast on their websites have absolutely no legality. It's just all talk, basically. They're not taking responsibility. They're not changing a lot, but they pretend like they do so that people will go back to consuming. Right. So what really struck me as I was sort of preparing for our conversation, so in in my work and, and people who do anti-racism work, we talk about performative allyship, sort of the look of being an ally, you know, have the symbol, do the action, do the thing so that others can say, yes, she's an ally or he's an ally, mm-hmm. they're an ally. And I see that in the sustainable fashion trends that are coming up right now, where it's yeah. about slapping a label on or renaming something. We call it greenwashing. Right, right. So can you talk us a little bit through what greenwashing is? Because, you know, a lot of us are wanting to do the right thing. So we'll see the thing that's the greenwashing thing and we're like, oh, okay, this is the right place to buy from then. Okay. So this is the part that's going to be like, oh, God. All of the big brands, mostly all of them greenwash. Basically, the speed at which the clothing is being produced is a part of the biggest problem. You know, because if these brands weren't producing so much, 
they could pay people better wages. If they paid better wages, you'd have better factories. You'd have people that got to take breaks. You'd have people that leave at five o'clock on the dot. You know, I had a big brand say to a room of people that, you know, the reason why child labor happens is because we give the orders to the factories and then the factories outsource the orders. Well, I'm sorry, but as a brand, you know how fast humans can work. And if you're giving a factory an order of 5 million t-shirts and you want it done in three days, that factory is going to tell you yes, because they don't want to lose your business. But you know, and I know how fast humans can work. And I think we both know that you're being very dishonest in your ask here. So the speed in which we are moving with our fashion is the problem. And is and that, for, just, to, just to pause you there, that speed, is it driven by the consumers or is it driven by the industry? Because slightly, we were, it's, not, it's, we were not consuming this fast before. It's a two-part thing. It's uh-huh. the speed of trends. And we've all played, I played my part in it for sure for a long time. Uh, and it's the industry. It's the idea that every time you walk into a store, you see new garments. That's not right. You know, like what's happening to the old garments? Right. 50% of fast fashion clothing that's made never even gets bought, gets incinerated. So it's the speed. It's that whole desire that you always need a new thing. You know, we've gotten that in our head. Like, oh, I'm going to a wedding. I need something new to wear. No, actually, you've got five good dresses. And you know what? The people at this wedding won't even know that you wore it to the last wedding. Right. You know, they- Social media thing too, like, oh, I've been photographed in this. So therefore I need something new. You don't need something new. You really don't. So it's a two-parter. It's it's us believing that we need new things constantly. And it is the consumer market pushing us to buy new things constantly. Mm. I mean, from the minute you walk into an H&M, that store is lined up to get you to part with your money. There's a really interesting book called Why We Buy, that lays out how you're marketed to in stores. You know, there are people that will actually watch hours of videotape where it's like this consumer came in and they skipped over this table. So we're going to move this table into this path and then they'll be forced to stop and look and then they'll buy something, you know? So it's an art to getting people to buy like that. But part of it is as consumers, we have to step away. And when you do that, you're going to be like, good Lord, why was I buying like that? Because mm-hmm. I had that realization. I definitely did. And, and I get messages every single day from people that tell me the same. Like, you know, ever since I started following your work, I used to buy something like monthly and, and I, I just stopped and I realized I thought I was buying monthly, but actually I was buying like weekly. Wow. And now that I've stopped, I have way more disposable income than I've ever had before. Right. And I don't feel as exhausted because that's another thing. The rate that we're moving at, we don't really get to truly enjoy our clothing. You know, that's one thing for me, ever since I stopped buying at this really super quick rate, I actually love my clothing more Mm. because I'm not constantly looking for the next thing. I'm not constantly looking for the next cheap thrill. So I'm really getting to sort of embrace my style it's so interesting you say that because I think sometimes people have the perception that is if I disengage from the trends and what is being offered, then I won't get to find a way to still enjoy 
fashion, you know, still enjoy fashion, but how to do it in a way where I'm doing less harm to people. I always tell people the, the first step, if you're trying to sort of figure this out, develop your personal style. Because when you realize what you like and you realize which brands you like, and this brand is an okay brand to buy from, they're a small, they're a small group. And, you know, I know that their products are made by five different people and they're paid a fair wage. Once you sort of get an idea for your own personal style, then finding the pieces can actually be really enjoyable. Like fast fashion has made us quite, I want to say spoiled in a way, because it's like you walk into a store and there it is all laid out for you. Oh, you want this look? Just grab it. Cool. Done. But I actually think finding the right pieces and the perfect pieces is massively rewarding. Right. And it's really enjoy what's in your closet. Yeah. But, um, I was exhausted by it all when I was, when I was shopping at that rate. And I didn't realize how tiring it was until I stopped. Right. I want to hear about your journey into this. When was your sort of awakening around this? And what has your journey been? So I always wanted to work in fashion, but you know, I talk about privilege and the fashion industry is rife with privilege. You know, I first actually came to London and I worked for a small clothing label. And that was a really fun experience because it was run by good people and they were really, really generous with me and hands-on. And it was the perfect experience. And then I moved back to the States and I finished my degree and I graduated and I, I ended up working in television because fashion just doesn't pay. But I took a year and went to New York and I worked for a magazine and that was the experience that everyone sort of says, oh, this is this is when you realize all the bad things about the fashion industry, the privilege, you know, the fact that if you want a job in fashion, you need to do five unpaid internships. Well, who can afford to do five unpaid internships and live in New York? And live in oh, New York, rich right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Rich right. Kids. right. So therefore, the rich kid gets rewarded with the editor job and mm-hmm. the poor kid has to actually get a, a job that's going to pay them money. So like, I had that experience and just realized, oh, I don't like the fashion industry. It seems like the only people that are promoted are already independently wealthy, which is so unfair. And so I came away from it feeling really, really jaded, but I always really liked fashion. So I started a blog and I was blogging about like, you know, my outfits and things that I liked. And once again, here come the rich kids. The rich kids started blogging and then all of a sudden, that was when all the sponsorship came and it was just like, oh, cool. So this person that's already wealthy is being rewarded for being wealthy and having Gucci shoes. Great. Right. You know? so- and let's add on to that as well. I'm sure the people who are being approached for the sponsorships are <laughs> thin, white, cisgendered women. Yes. I right. mean, one of the things I even talk about, like I live in London. It is a privilege to live in London and to do this work because you have access. Like, The people that are always promoted the most on Instagram are not living in the middle of middle America. And if they are, they're very, very wealthy. You know, Mm. they they still have the access. But like living in London, I was talking about sustainable fashion when I lived in DC, but nobody cared until I moved to London. And the reason people care is because you're in the right place. You're able to go to the parties. You're able Mm. to go to the the government meetings that are chaired by cool designers like Catherine Hemnett you have access. And so just living in the city gives you a certain amount of privilege. And that's something else I talk about on my platform, that the people that you see with like the big 
social media accounts. They live in London and Stockholm and Paris and LA and New York, DC, not so much, you know? So just being back here really gave me something, but that's privilege. It is. Mm. And so that's why I always talk about privilege in my platform. But when I was living in the DC area, I was blogging and I was enjoying it. But one thing I noticed was I began to sort of chart the speed in which people were buying clothing. And I think that social media has played its part in it for sure. But um, I began to feel icky about the amount of clothing that I was buying and burning through. Mm -hmm. And I was not one of those people where I would do a whole video where I would go and buy a bunch of stuff and then you know, show it off and not wear it much. No, I was, I was buying for my actual wardrobe, right. but I still felt like the turnover was much quicker than anything I'd ever experienced mm. in childhood. And I just thought that's really weird. And then it began to dawn on me that this isn't just me. This mm. is actually the way our world is operating. And that's a very, very strange thing. We shouldn't be buying whole new wardrobes every single year. Like, Mm. what is the effects of this? And also I began to notice like the change in what you could get in a charity shop. So when you go into a thrift store or charity shop where before you could find some really nice things, it's now just flooded with fast fashion. Mm. You know, when I lived in London in 2003, you could walk into a charity shop and get some cool stuff. And now it's just all leftover Zara and Marks and Spencer's and just like, and it doesn't look good. It doesn't look as nice, you know? And that was when I began to realize that we really had a problem because you're seeing the effects of this and you're knowing that the charities aren't selling all of it. I used to volunteer at a charity shop where I live and I was seeing those donations come in. You Mm -hmm. know, I was, I was marking clothing and I was seeing exactly how much we were receiving and it was too much. It was more than we could possibly put in stores. So we give some of it to West Virginia. We we give it to other charities, but they probably had too much as well. So I began to chart that things were looking pretty weird. Yeah. And yeah, through all of my fashion blogging, working at the charity shop or volunteering at the charity shop, I just began to really sort of think, what on earth are we doing? I'm really curious to know what took it for you from a sort of peaked interest to something that you really are dedicating your time and your energy to. Why are you, you personally, Aja, so passionate about this? I used to write about fashion and I used to write about race. And one was in this corner and the other Mm. was in this corner. Mm. And never shall the two meet. And then one day I realized, actually, the two should totally meet. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw, intersectionality. Uh All of these intersections can be applied in these topics. And I think my starting to talk about race on the internet was quite a shock. I mean, for my family, you've probably experienced this too. I mean, I first started on Facebook and I think my family was like, really kind of starting to freak out the white people. And I was kind of like, good, maybe it's time to feel uncomfortable, you know? But um, I just sort of kept at it and I, I lost people, but I realized that they were kind of dead weight that was dragging me down because 
if I can't share my whole truth with you, then is this really a friendship? I would say no. Right. You know, so it was it was years of me talking about it on Facebook and pissing people off and not really caring much, you know, but then I began to realize that all these things that are happening with race can be applied to fashion. The race stuff I think came about because under Barack Obama in America, shit started to get real weird. You know, it was just like, you know, I'm used to discomfort around race, but it just seemed like white people were saying things that they had never said before, then blaming Barack Obama for it. Like, oh, well, things were much better before that guy came around. And honestly, as far as race goes, the dude doesn't talk about race that much. You know, so it was one of those things where white people were so visibly annoyed by the idea that they had this black man as president who honestly is pretty moderate when it comes to race stuff. But I could feel Trump coming. And I think a lot of people could because things just mm. felt weird. And that was why I started talking about race. And and another thing, as an American, you know, I live in the UK now, but Black Lives Matter started to reach prominence right when I became the age where I started thinking about whether or not I was going to have a family. Mm-hmm. And when you're thinking about it, you're a mother from the perspective of even a future mom, you start to see things a lot differently. When it's just you and you're just thinking about the future from your perspective, it's a lot different than thinking about, you know, my niece or my nephew or I have a baby one day, you know? So I felt like I need to talk about this stuff because I don't want this world to be a mess for the next generation. And right now, I'm not feeling so comfortable driving at night in Virginia because police brutality seems to be on the rise. Or maybe right. it was just always there. Right. We just have phones to record it. You know, right. like maybe it was just one of those things where all of a sudden we were all having this, oh my goodness, this is really not okay. Yeah. You know, so I began to talk about race. It pissed people off, but I was still talking about fashion and I just thought, oh, well, why not piss people off with both topics at the same time? <laughs> right. <laughs> I love what you've said though about, you know, as you were considering, do I want to have a family? Do I want to have children? And you're right, as a mother, as I do my work, so much of it is about creating a world that is better for them and better for yes. if I if I have future descendants, that it is my responsibility yes. to do what I can do to create a better world for them. I said this to someone the other day, I don't want to be on my deathbed and have my niece or nephew say to me, like, why didn't you guys change this? You know, and I think about, even for our generation, that's right. As the age that I'm at, I do think sometimes, how do the adults sleep at night knowing that like school shootings became normalized on their watch? Right. I I had that thought recently that like, because Columbine happened when I was in the 11th grade Mm. and um, it was this bizarre thing that happened. And it was just like, this is bizarre. And then it just kept happening. And now that I'm 37, I think, I can't believe the adults didn't riot in the streets. Right. I was thinking about this uh, sort of same thing that you've just said, but in the context of uh, climate change. So I remember being you know, in school studying geography and thinking, what do you mean deforestation? What do you mean 
the, you know, the ozone layer is like, there's a hole in it. Like surely yeah. by the time we are adults, they will have figured this out and reverse yeah. things. And as we have seen, that's not the case. And yeah, it's a lot worse. And so as I think about what it means to me to be a good ancestor, it's really, you know, I can't, and it's the same when I talk to people with white privilege about dismantling white supremacy. I know that as an individual, you're not an institution. Yes. You cannot do what an institution can do, but you changing and making changes within yourself has a ripple effect. And on a hopeful note, I mean, I've said all these things about fast fashion. Like for instance, fast fashion makers make 500 garments a minute. Like that is horrific. That is more clothing that we are possibly wearing. There's enough clothing on earth where every single person could have at least seven items in their wardrobe, but not every single person actually needs that amount of clothing. And we know that not every single person is consuming that amount. It's those of us in the West and the global North that tend to be sort of doing that. Meanwhile, climate change is going to affect people in the global South first. Right. So they're having the least amount of the cause and they are going to be affected. The most impacted, right. Most impacted. And so the reason why I keep going with fashion is because I feel like there's a lot of things surrounding climate change that's going to be really challenging. You know, when it comes to the fossil fuel industry, we're going to need our politicians to do their jobs. Right. You know, that's going to be hard. But when I think about this process of buying and consuming, I truly believe that we are way more powerful than we give ourselves credit for. I really do. And I think that's why I've picked this path because we have seen this change happen in our lifetime and we can reverse it within our lifetime. Mm. We can reverse it in five years. We can stop buying so much. We can start buying more secondhand. We can start doing more swaps with our friends, you know, and to be honest, the fast fashion industry is already seeing an effect because- Well, this is what I was going to ask you, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm curious about the difference between, it's sort of like when, sorry to bring veganism no. into this. No, it's fine. Oh Lord, it's sort of, me from them. <laughs> it's sort of like the difference between does an individual act of one person to choose a vegan lifestyle- mm-hmm. Will that have an impact when a lot of the damage that's being done is by these big companies? There's sometimes an argument that, as I said, like what can one individual do or a group of small individuals do versus the real like huge harm that's being done by these industries? Um, okay. so you just you were just saying about yeah. the change. So the thing about food, and this is why I don't talk about food often, I think that food and clothing are two very, very different things because food is nourishing. We need food to survive. Now you need a certain amount of clothing to survive too, but it's not the same level and it's not as constant. You know, with food, it can be cultural. It can be related to someone's health. Right. You know, you don't know what that person has, you know, the ability to eat and not eat. And right. so like I really stay away from that. And also as far as disordered eating, it could be a triggering topic for people who have dealt with disordered eating. Right. So that's why I really, really stay away from food because honestly, I think it's way more complicated than people make it out to be. And I also think with all things, even with like shopping, there's a mountain of privilege there. I mean, my husband yes. and I, we eat a very like pretty green diet but like we're also two single adults on two incomes 
and we live in one of the most affluent cities in the world. We can Mm. go to a number of grocery stores around the corner from our house and there's loads of vegetarian options and there's loads of fresh green vegetables. You know, the conversation around veganism is missing the fact that black and brown neighborhoods are often the victims of redlining and redlining affects who has grocery stores and who doesn't. There's places in America where it's cheaper to buy your family McDonald's than it is to get a week's worth of fruit and veg, you know? And so there's so much in that conversation that's so complex. And I find that a lot of these online movements just skip right over the complexity of that conversation. Now with clothing, you do need a certain amount of clothing to survive, but the rate in which we've been buying is not even about survival. It's about greed. It's about how can we push people to buy things that they don't actually need? It's about changing the season. It used to be we had two fashion seasons a year. Now some stores have as many as 20. Wow. Yeah. And so it's been a very deliberate greed-related thing. And that's why I focus on fashion. I do think that we have individual impact because at the end of the day, without the demand, there is no supply. People aren't going to be making 20 seasons of clothing if consumers say, I'm only buying clothing four times a year and stick to it. Right. And we're already seeing um, a response from the fashion industry. The CEO of H&M just did a very misguided interview where he blamed consumers for continuing poverty, saying that the age of eco-activism means that People aren't buying as much and they're going to negatively contribute to poverty all over the world by not buying things. And what he's saying is, I'm a billionaire and I'm threatened by this movement. Because the thing is, my dude, you are a billionaire. I think you have 4.2 billion. Just one of your billions could actually really help a small country to like get back on its feet. You could actually invest maybe two of your billions into your company and you could build amazing factories and pay people fair wages, but you refuse to, but sure, go ahead and blame the general public for this. So Mm. when I read that quote, I thought this is a man who's running scared and it made me feel very powerful and it made me want to keep going and to keep suggesting that people stop buying from big brands start buying from smaller brands, start shopping secondhand more. The more I read things like this, we're billionaires. And I'll also say the H&M family has four billionaires in it. So the CEO is a billionaire. His aunt is a billionaire. His brother is a billionaire and his sister is a billionaire. Four billionaires and one family. And you're blaming the general public for poverty? Like, how do you sleep at night, my man? So when I hear things like that, I know that they're, they're threatened. By this, and they should be. The days of fast fashion companies turning billion profits every single year, that's done. It needs to go away in order for us to combat climate change. And I want it to go away. And so when I see quotes like that, I know that this man is very threatened by this movement that I'm pushing. And it just makes me want to push all the more harder. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. You you spoke earlier about, I know this is something that you constantly make sure to bring this lens in, but you spoke about privilege. 
and not just white privilege, right? We're mm-hmm. talking about economic privilege and other privileges. Um, educational privilege. Educational privilege. Right, exactly. And so, Able-bodied privilege. That's right. So when we're talking about fashion and a move away from fast fashion, which is cheaper, and I don't know if sustainable or smaller brand fashion is of a similar price or if it's more expensive, when we bring in this lens of privilege and who can afford. There's a lot of misconceptions surrounding the sustainable fashion movement. And I really like to address them. First of all, I would love for you to do so. (laughs) First of all, people always say, oh, well, you know, the reason why the clothing is cheap is because it makes it accessible to everyone. If you go into the store Zara, most of Zara's dresses cost 69 pounds and above. That's actually not accessible to everyone. We have to get it through our heads that the fast fashion movement has not been brought to what it is by people that are in poverty. It's been upper middle class people shopping like no tomorrow. So that's the first misconception is that everyone acts like fast fashion only exists because people without disposable income have to shop there. And that's just Mm. not true. The Mm -hmm. most sustainable, ethical people I know are people like my mom. My mom never buys new. She goes to the thrift store. Like my mom actually, she grew up in poverty. And so like that stays with you, even though we were very middle-class when I was a kid, my mom has never been able to sort of shake that. And so Mm. for her, even before thrifting and shopping secondhand was trendy, and believe me, it was not cool when I was a teenager. Right. <laughs> my mom was buying most of her clothing from the thrift store and a lot of mine too, which I tried very hard to keep a secret. You know, so the people that I know that are the most ethical aren't even actually buying into the system. It's upper middle class people with disposable income who are buying into it. Mm-hmm. You know, and another thing. You see like fast fashion, everyone goes, oh, it's so cheap. Not everything in those stores is that cheap. You know, like Mm. if a dress from Zara costs 69 pounds and a dress from H&M costs 59 pounds, you can go on Etsy right now and buy a handmade dress from a designer in Bulgaria for 60 euros. And that's an actual seamstress. And Mm. so this is a person that has their business and they're employing you know, four or five seamstresses in their neighborhood. And it's a wonderful thing to actually give your money directly to a maker instead of to a brand who has 50 different supply chains and you you would have to go through 50 different people to get to the person who made your clothing. Mm. You know, so there's this misconception that fast fashion is cheap. And I think that is a misconception, you know, and there's this misconception that ethical shopping is always expensive. And that is also a misconception. It ranges. And then there's also this misconception that, oh, well, you know, people without the means to shop will have no place to shop if fast fashion goes away. That's so untrue. Before there was fast fashion, people that did not have would still shop secondhand, would still, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's one of these things where people will throw any excuse at me to sort of continue to buy into this cycle. And I just have to be like, I think, I think you are right though. I think it's the misconception. If we're so used to buying from the big brand stores and that's just what we know, 
sort of venturing into a smaller store where we're not seeing what we would usually, what we're used to usually yeah. eating, right? It's yeah. something, yes. it's something different. It's sort of, I think for some people, maybe a little bit intimidating. Um, this is true. Yeah. I, I know that you that. do, you that. do some style consulting, right? I do. And that's extremely rewarding. Like I, I work with people and all sizes, because another thing we know is that fashion has not been inclusive of bigger bodies. And so my goal through my work is to one, get people off of fast fashion, but also push ethical brands to be inclusive because you can't have a movement that's going to be new and better while excluding people, same as always. Like that just, that isn't a movement I'm signing up for. So I, a lot of the work that I do that people don't even see is me just messaging companies and being like, so when are you extending your sizes? You know, right. something I do every single day. I and think it's this, thing, but it's worth it. This is so important what you're saying, because just because the brand is ethical does not mean that they have necessarily addressed or yeah. made sure to include the yeah. same people who are always centered. And one of the things that I also tell people is in this conversation, like all conversations, punch up. Like it is not your job to tell someone with less economic disposable income than you Mm. that they should be buying from all these ethical brands. Like that's very unfair. However, you know, especially if you're a Londoner, most of your friends are probably from the same socioeconomic background as you are, Mm. you know? So like, it's one of those things where I'm never, ever going to look at the single mother of two and ask her why she's buying her kid's shoes from Primark. You right. know, like that to me being a crappy person. But in actuality, most of my friends are at the same place income-wise as I am. So I can talk to them about buying better. Mm-hmm. And the goal overall for me is to basically regulate the fashion industry so that everyone is operating from the same place. And when you get to that point, there'll be something for people at every income level. You know Mm. what I mean? But Mm. overall, we have to overhaul what we currently have because right now it's like the wild, wild west out there. Okay. So tell me a little bit about, and we sort of started the conversation there, but I think this is really important to kind of bounce off something that you just said. As a Black woman specifically, addressing, you know, these conversations in an area just like every other area that is dominated by, you know, capitalist, uh, racist, patriarchy. And this is not to minimize anything of what we've just said so far, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not just about this sort of the way that colonialism continues to play out. And the fact that those in the global South will be, will continue to be harmed because of the actions in the global north, but also even as that change is made towards an ethical and fashion uh, industry, that it still continues to play out, you know, what Bell Hooks calls capitalist white, white supremacist patriarchy. Mm-hmm. So you're not just talking about the fashion sort of uh, machine, but you're also talking specifically around race and you're yes. a black woman talking yeah. about race. And so in the area that you're in, I'm really, I guess I'm really curious to hear about how do you see voices such as yours being treated? 
Well, at the minute, people are sitting up and listening, but like I always tell people I've been beating this drum for like five years and like nobody cared until last year. But at the minute, I find my voice is really well received. I mean, obviously, as we talked about earlier, not everyone is here for your message. Right. And, you know, part of me is kind of like, that's fine. Carry on with your day and find a place where you do feel like you're down with it. But I've seen my audience has grown. When we first met, my audience jumped from 1,100 people to 4,000 people. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> it was it was bananas. Yeah. And then, and then from that time period on, that was last year in August, I think. Uh-huh. I'm now at 37,000 followers, which has been an intense jump in a short amount of time. And I think it's because all of these elements are just sort of happening right now with climate change and mm-hmm. race. Like I always say it's kind of the right place, right time. Yeah. Because, you know, I've been talking about sustainable fashion and race separate. And I think it's a combination of of climate change, of Donald Trump, of hostile right-wing governments. I think people are feeling like we need new leaders, we need new voices. Mm. And I just think that's why it's happening now. But I think that if we didn't have a problem with climate change, no one would see the problem with fast fashion. You know, if we didn't have this right-wing spread, people probably wouldn't think that race was still such a a Mm. huge problem. You know, Mm -hmm. we've seen Rachel Cargill's audience really grow. Mm -hmm. And it's because people are really starting to, to want to like do the work and to be better. And so I always say it, for me, I feel like it's a right place, right time sort of thing. Yeah. But not just not just me. I mean, I've seen so many women of color that I'm friends with that have just had so much success in the last 10 years where when I went to college, I, I was interested in fashion. I was interested in writing. And these were two things that I was actively discouraged from doing mm-hmm. by like not just my family, but advisors, Mm. you know, like, oh, well, you want to be a writer? Okay, well, that's going to be a tough one, you know, where no one ever says that to a white male. But in the last 10 years, I've seen people that I know, like Ijiomo Luo, who, Mm -hmm. you know, she's writing amazing books, you know, she's flying all over the world, where 20 years ago, I I don't think that there would have been a lot of space. But I feel like there's this mass awakening going on where people are just realizing we either really, really get to the nitty gritty of a lot of these issues or we perish. And I mm-hmm. think that's really what it's, what it's come down to, you know, that people are just starting to realize that like these things do matter. You know, and because sometimes I've seen it in my field and other, in other fields as well, sometimes the voices such as ours are really held up, but they're tokenized and fetishized. Mm-hmm. And then some of the other voices that get centered are those who are in, who don't sit at identities of marginalization. So often yeah. who have white privilege are able to build bigger platforms are seen as more credible. Yeah. I've seen it just in like fashion and sustainability. There's a lot of people, especially in the UK, who have made their money from selling fast fashion. So on Instagram, one of the ways that people make money is through sponsored content right? and through affiliated links and stories. So mm-hmm. swipe up to buy this every mm-hmm. single day, swipe up to buy this. And I'm not 
hating on those people because I think getting paid is just something that women, all women have traditionally struggled with. But I think if you were selling people fast fashion for the last five years, you have to own the part that you've played in this because a white woman influencer who has 250,000 followers, if she's doing swipe ups every single day, say 1% of her audience buys a skirt from a fast fashion brand, that's 2,500 pieces sold. Mm. That's a part of the problem. Mm. So because fast fashion is starting to get a pretty bad name, I'm seeing a lot of white women who have been selling a lot of fast fashion pivoting towards sustainability. And that is pissing me off because I just think this is not your space. You know, like I have never taken a dime from fast fashion brands. And there have been times where I have wanted to kick my own ass for not taking that money. You know, when my platform grew, my partner was like, well, what are you going to do, babe? You know, you got to get a job. You got to do something. And I was like, I know I'm trying to figure it out, but I I can't take these. It's just, I can't. Like this company is a part of the problem. Right. And the companies with the biggest marketing budgets for influencer marketing are generally a part of the problem. Right. And so there was a time period where I was saying no to a lot of stuff where I really could have used that money but because right. I know I can't work with this company. One, once companies pay you a paycheck, they think they own you. And right. so it would be one of those things where it's like, well, we're paying you. So could you please not talk about white supremacy on your grid anymore? So I didn't want anyone doing that to me because I knew that I would essentially be muted for a paycheck and that I wasn't prepared to do. So Patreon's been a godsend and it's worked out in my favor because as it turns out, influencer trust is down right now because people are actually sick of being sold to. And so influencer trust is lower than politicians at the minute, which is is not saying a lot. I think we got inundated. We got got inundated and people got sick of being sold to every single day. It just got to be too much. And also people have a hard time with telling what is an ad? What isn't an ad? So they right. don't know if an influencer is sharing a product, whether or not this person is getting a sneaky paycheck on the side mm. for sharing that product. Where with me, I basically said, listen, y'all, I don't want to take money from any of these brands that are offering money because they're actually the brands that I think are kind of bad and need to go out of business. So what I will do is I will keep this space relatively ad-free, mm. but I need for you all to support my work in a tangible way. So I have a no brand rule on my on my Instagram. I will lift up brands and stories that I think are doing cool things, but I don't talk about brands on my grid because I'm not going to tell you where to shop on my grid. Mm. One, Instagram makes so much money off of Black women while treating us so badly. Right. So I talk about any brand someone starts getting served ads. So Instagram is actually getting a cut from me while I'm not making any money. Right. You know, so I have a no brand rule on my page where I say, if you want to learn where to shop, go follow me on Patreon. There's a full list there. I share brands regularly. I talk about what I like and what I buy, but I generally don't talk about brands because as long as there's no money in that space, then everybody's getting something out of it except for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't really... I don't really enjoy selling people things. I I always tell people if 
if I ever sell you a clothing product, my name will be on it. And right. If my name <laughs> on it, I will know where the fabric came from. Right. I will know what factory it was made in. I will know how much those factory workers were paid to make mm. those garments. Mm. And until that happens, I'm not going to sell you clothing because I can't honestly stand by a lot of these brands because I can tell you as far as, as far as greenwashing goes, any big brand that you can name off the top of your head is pretty much guilty of it. Mm. The brand that I will think is not greenwashing will be the brand that will say, you know what, y'all, we're making way too much stuff. So we're going to step back. And that's a very hard thing for a brand to do, especially when you have a board of investors that is just looking for a profit every single season. I think that retail is in this place where no one can really win at the minute. And that kind of sucks. But I'm also not, I'm not going to prop up a system that ultimately hurts black and brown people Mm -hmm. because capitalism tells me to. I refuse to. And so the whole not branding and putting a lot of paid content on my grid has actually been a godsend because people do go to Patreon and and say, okay, I'm going to sign up here. And and then every day they get an article with information. You know, they have access to the brands that I think are really cool and doing cool things. Yeah. And uh, it's just a, it's a much less hostile space than Instagram because Instagram can be quite volatile. I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it can. I just want to sort of acknowledge and appreciate you for, and I see this in so many of the people that I get to talk to is so many of us are finding these pioneering ways of having to talk about and bring to light and hold space for conversations that are really necessary at this time, but also trying to do so in a way that really honors you, honors your creativity, honors your energy, honors your labor, while trying to figure out how do I also make sure that everything I'm pouring out into the world, I am being taken care of as well. It's a hard balance. There's there's so much. Yeah. There has been times where brands have offered me a lot of money and I've said no because morally it didn't sit right with me. And that is a very, very hard thing to say no to sometimes, especially when you gotten married within a single year and had to do the expensive British visa process, mm-hmm. you know, and not been able to work. I wasn't able to work at all last year because I was on a fiance and marriage visa. And so it's very hard sometimes to walk that line, which is why I get very annoyed when people that have profited from the problem are now going, oh, well, I enjoy sustainability too, because what they're essentially doing is trying to line up so they can make money off of whatever the next thing is. Thing is, right. Everybody kind of knows that like the fast fashion train has not just left the station, but it's kind of speeding towards a a cliff. It's run amok in a way where people are starting to move their seats away from it. So I just don't think it's cool that people that have made six figures a year from selling the problem and have played their part. There was an article that came out that said, influencers are definitely part of fast fashion are all of a sudden starting to sort of dip their toe into my arena. I don't think that's very cool, but I think once again, it's white supremacy and greed, you know, like profiting from movements that you've not built. You know, you see it in the body positivity movement. Right. I, I am plus size. I'm a baby fat, but I always tell people I'm very careful about not taking up too much space there because I've not spent the majority of my life in a bigger body. I was straight size for much of my life. Of course, 
straight size, but on the bigger end. So some people probably did consider me plus size. Either way, I'm very careful about not taking up space where I don't need to take up space because that's a very unfair thing to do. Right. And that's a tenet of sort of white supremacy is trying to like put your finger in all the pies and yeah. have your voice in spaces where it's completely unnecessary. Right. And that where, yes, yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. You've just like left me with so much to think about. And I really enjoyed this conversation, Aja. Thank you for bringing all of these different nuanced, you know, ways and themes of things that we need to consider. And I just want to, again, appreciate you because I know that so many of us are trying in our own ways, using our passions, our skills, the privileges that we have, as well as the the thing inside that calls to us. I wonder if I was coherent enough. So I want to give people just a few tips. Because that would I be amazing. Like the yeah. conversation, like we would go in one direction, which is cool. I think you like that, but I want to make sure I'm giving people tips. So yeah. basically, if you're concerned about a brand and whether they're doing right, write them, be vocal, let them know that like you know about these bad things happening and that as a consumer, you're not comfortable with it. That's one thing that you can do. But in general, I would say much of the bigger brands aren't doing things right. And until they do things better, it's better to shop from a smaller brand. I can say this. I always tell people this. Even if it's a small brand and they have nothing about ethics and sustainability, their carbon footprint is still smaller Mm. than a brand on Oxford Circus. Mm. So like, even if this brand makes no promises to you whatsoever you are still contributing to a smaller carbon footprint when buying from them than you are if you go to Zara or H&M or Topshop. So that's a great way to start. Buy more secondhand. I've always done a lot of my shopping on eBay because I can't afford all the things I like. And so buying it secondhand has always allowed me to you know, have a little bit of access to certain designer goods. So lots of secondhand. There's lots of great places to shop in the US if you're in ThreadUp. You know, that's a great place. The Real Real is pretty rad. eBay, you know, there's all these resources for shopping secondhand. But if you want to shop more secondhand, figure out what your personal style is and what you like, because it's going to make it so much easier. And when you actually feel like you have your style, shopping and finding the right item, be it secondhand or from a small ethical maker is rewarding and super fun. You'll see. Mm -hmm. And then... So at the end of the day, evaluate, do you really need it? Say you're in a fast fashion store and you're tempted by something. Ask yourself, am I going to wear this garment 40 times? Because if all of us wore all of our pieces 40 times, we wouldn't actually have a fast fashion problem. The problem is we aren't. And so next time you pick up something, if you really, really need it, you know, like I said, I'm not shaming you. I don't know your financial situation, but ask yourself, am I truly buying this? because I need it? Or am I buying this because I feel pressured to buy it? And if you're not sure, walk away. And in an hour, if you're still thinking about it, then go back and get it. But I guarantee you, in most cases, nine out of 10, you won't be thinking about it within an hour. Wow. That is really helpful. Thank you for leaving us with some tips because you're absolutely right. It can get overwhelming and there's so many different pieces to think about. And as I said earlier, I think sometimes a lot of us feel intimidated because it's really about a different way of thinking and a different way of showing up in the world and we need guidance. And so I really appreciate those practical tips that you have. I'd also really encourage people to follow you on Instagram and to 
pledge to you on Patreon. We'll make sure to have all those links in the show notes um, so people can do that. Aja, our final question, what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? It means leaving this earth better than how you found it. And unfortunately, we have our work cut out for us because the previous generations haven't been doing that. They haven't. But I like to say that I believe in us and I believe in my niece and nephew. And I want to be a good ancestor because I want this earth to be around for the next generation. And the earth will always be around, but will we as humans be around? That's like right. we're, we're, we're the parasites. At the end of the day, right. the earth is going to be fine. It's going to cast us aside. Yeah. And I just don't want that for my niece and nephew. So being a good ancestor and just being a good person in general is leaving every space better than how you found it. And so I feel like if you're listening to this podcast and you follow Layla's work, then you're into that. So keep doing you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Aja. I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at goodancestorpodcast and drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.